Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, bringing you another new and an exciting episode uh, to talk about areas relevant to the field. And today we have uh, scholars from uh, the the uh, the Adaptive Physical Activity Consortium, which we've we've highlighted quite a bit, but also all of them are from the Ohio State University. Uh, we have Dr. Hodge, who is a professor at the University of the Ohio State University. And uh, and then we have two, I believe both are first year PhD students, Thomas Wilson and Ross Jordan. So uh, welcome all. How are you all doing? Doing great. Thank you. Wonderful. Doing well. Good, good, good. So Dr. Hodge and and, and uh, Mr. Wilson have, have been on here before. And about uh, Ross, this is your first time. So hello. Um, and uh, with that, then, so my hope is to kind of give you all the reins for this this conversation, because this conversation, I believe, started through a presentation you did with the the consortium. And, and within that, I know that you, you know, you all talked about diversity and social justice pedagogy, but also kind of talked a little bit about your backgrounds and experiences that brought you to this conversation and, and maybe framed your view on all of that. Before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about the overarching view and points of the presentation that you presented uh, that brought you all here? Uh, absolutely, I can start and, and uh, Thomas and Ross, feel free to jump in. So uh, we started out giving a historical context to uh, persons who, are mar- who historically have been marginalized. And so we defined that as uh, minoritized people of color, women, uh, LGBTQ groups, and persons with disabilities, and uh, such persons who, again, have historically been disadvantaged, discriminated against, and oppressed uh, by institutional and structural barriers uh, within the United States, including institutional racism. And from there, we went into such definitions of social justice and culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy. And so that was the foundation of that conversation. But we started it off with giving some historical context to the different movements that have been a part of the United States. Very cool. That let's, let's first, you know, and again, I want you all to take the reins. So would you rather kind of define these concepts first? Or would you rather kind of talk about these historical areas and experiences. So if we starting out, let's do some of uh, the historical piece, because I think setting context is always important. And so if from a historical perspective, we went back to, and of course, you can go back, uh, you know, 400 years, but we didn't go quite that far back. We went back to really the 1950s and worked our way forward. And so we started really with uh, segregation in public schools in the United States and then went to, uh, of course, May 17th, 1954, with the the United States Supreme Court decision in terms of Brown versus Board of Education and what that meant for uh, the desegregation of schools in the United States. And I talked about how as a person who was born in the late 1950s and a child of the 1960s, 
and 1970s, I recall witnessing the protests and demonstrations that took place when that, that important decision was made. I recall being one of uh, three black uh, students to integrate Parkton High School, which at the time was all white school, and what that experience was like, and coming to understand that you could be uh, quote unquote included, but really in true essence still excluded uh, in those kinds of spaces. And so that was part of the uh, historical context that was given. And so we connected that history to where we are today and where we saw in, in 2020, um, 2020, where we saw demonstrations and protests uh, as it relates to racial injustice and inequities. And, and uh, part of the conversation was that those things aren't new kinds of things. I mean, the technology is new and and the people who are on the streets, but the act itself, the movements are, are not new phenomenon, but they there are cycles that these movements happen. And typically uh, something triggers those movements, if we're gonna call it a movement. Uh, and it happened to be the George Floyd uh, killing that triggered the most recent one that comes to mind in a series of police killings that uh, of black men have triggered those kinds of things. but Historically, we've seen that time and time again. And the larger point that I think we were making was that is this a true movement that will be sustained? Or is this a moment in time that uh, 20 years from now, people will look back and say, well, there was a movement, but how much actually changed? And so is this sustainable? Will real change happen in the United States? Um, yeah, so thank you for that, Dr. Hodge. Yeah, so we definitely went over a lot of the historical context of um, the civil rights movement and um, the history of racial injustice, but also applying it to what that looks like in today's school systems. A lot of times I believe we have this, um, have historically and presently have um, this very distorted narrative of what integration looks like within school systems, um, within workspaces. Um, and so for me personally, um, I'm, a, I'm a Gen Z, as people like to say, zillennial, somewhere between Gen Z and a millennial. And so um, I grew up having parents who also were some of the first to integrate their school systems and living with those traumas and those experiences. And as a Gullah Geisha African-American person, those are things that were being known. And for whatever reason, the way that it was taught and perceived in um, the school systems were that some of these same systemic issues were no longer um, still in place, that integration um, was something that happened a long time ago and now everything is on equal playing field. But we can very easily see um, not only from just a racial standpoint, but in other aspects um, of marginalized communities, how things still are not equitable um, when you look at um, the representation of people with disabilities and um, within school systems, when you look at how, um, how the walks and the journeys that people face are still very undertold and very under-researched, even in our fields as scholars um, within adapted physical activity. And so a large part of the um, presentation as well was making that connection of that intersection between race and disability um, to marginalized identities um, that most people in general society tend to overlook and that we're hoping to pay more attention to and discuss more within the context of our field. Yeah, and just to add, I think for me personally, 
thinking about history, I come from, you know, grandparents who weren't able to even go to college um, and, you know, get those opportunities that we have now. And even for myself, I've I've had opportunities that a lot of people wouldn't have coming from a public school district that's predominantly African-American um, or minority minority and then attending a private school where I was, you know, one of maybe two or three on the entire football team, um, a very affluent community. And so I've seen the inequities. I've experienced the inequities that that a lot of minorities have in not only education, but life in general. And even specifically on physical education, you know, we go into these different communities and the same access and opportunities aren't there. One, because of resources, but also just because there aren't a lot of a lot of times people making those opportunities for us. And so I think it's important for us to be on here today, but also in the same space on a regular day basis to be a part of change and bring these issues to head and do do our due diligence to create opportunities for minorities and, you know, reach back from the history that we've also experienced, but make sure that we do what we can so that the future generation aren't, you know, receiving the same inequities that we've experienced. And just to, to jump in, and, and again, I want to hear from you all more and, and have you guide this this thing, but two things that kind of um, popped up is one, Ross, you just said, like, having this, like, not just highlighting you right now. And, and I talked to Dr. Hodge over the summer and uh, Dr. Uh, Galloway about this because it was like, we came in, it was right after, like, you know, right when the movement was really taking a hold and it was like, okay, this is great having you all on here, but like, let's have you on here and like now. Right. And I, but I, you know, let's highlight black scholars, not just at that, like when something happens, right. But let's do it on a regular basis. And I do, and I, you know, and we have to do that in, in so many spaces. Um, but the other thing, and, and Dr. Hodge, this is something that, you know, in my mind, I'm always thinking about is, you know, is it a movement or is it a moment in time? And that was a really profound thing. And maybe you could expand on that. Like what, what, like, what does that mean? Like, and, and what are the differences between the two? Right. So I, the way I conceptualize that is if it's a, if it's a moment in time, uh, it, there would be a defined period of time where you can see where it really started, some activity, some action. And then you can see a, a point where it just faded out for whatever reason, loss of momentum, uh, lack of enthusiasm, or people went on to something different. Uh, that happens. And so for me, that's a moment in time. A movement is something that is sustained. And even though it may, uh, it may change in some ways from being on the streets, literally marching on the streets and demonstrating to action in boardrooms and in places where people make decisions that impact the lives of people on an everyday basis. Uh, and it continues through that. And so for me, a movement is, is transformative. A movement is uh, in, in of itself transforms itself into something different from action on the street to uh, making decisions that are impactful. And so what we see here, uh, at least in the past year or so, so it's kind of too early to really tell, um, definitively to tell, but what we do see are some, some changes that should have taken place uh, decades ago. 
uh, changing on brands, for an example. Uh, things were uh, common everyday scenes, such as picking up, you know, a jar of, of uh, syrup for your pancakes and changing brands that should have been disbanded a long time ago to uh, people making uh, serious decisions about uh, education and health and uh, putting together uh, committees to make those kinds of decisions and implementing, implementing those kinds of decisions. So what I've seen in the past uh, 10, 12 months or so is uh, this transforming from being on the streets, which is good because the streets bring attention to a need for change. Being on the streets doesn't actually do the change. Uh, that's, that's work is even more difficult in a lot of kinds of ways. But what we know about this particular moment in time, which in essence may become a movement, hopefully it does, is that there are people in spaces and places now with authority to make decisions. So protesters are asking for change. They're not really making the change themselves. They're advocating for change. The people who make the change are those persons in places to make change. And so if we're in if we're in the academy, it are those people who are in deanship positions to hire faculty of color, for an example. So if we want to enhance the number of faculty of color in adaptive physical education um, at, you know, our research institutions as one space and our teacher preparation programs uh, as another space, we need people who are willing to make decisions to do that. And so we see some of that happening. We see persons such as yourself willing to bring different perspectives and uh, to articulate views and concerns uh, around these kinds of topics. We see that happening. We see uh, CEOs of corporations making decisions about what we will and will not do. We see uh, if we're talking about in terms of uh, gender type issues and sexual harassment, we see these major institutions uh, holding people more accountable uh, for the actions that they take. So I'm still optimistic that it's, it, you know, when the history books are written, that this will, in fact, be a movement uh, because we can see some permanent, sustained change. Uh, and the last thing I would say there is we're always cautioned. We always, always must be uh, cautious to understand that uh, progress is not permanent, uh, that you have to continue to fight for progress. And, and Dr. Hodge, you, you know, you told me this when we spoke last week. And so, Thomas, I am going to ask you in a second, maybe to talk a little bit about your Charlottesville experience. Um, but, you know, before we if, if you're OK with that. Um, but, you know, one thing that pops up in my mind when you're talking about all these things is, you know, is this movement. And then there's almost like these you know, the thing that it really there's something that like, I mean, I, I called up a family member and yelled at them because I knew they voted for Trump when the Capitol riots happened, uh, you know, a month or two ago, because that to me was, I don't even have words, you know, for what, what happened during that. Does that, like, are those things, in, in, in my mind, are those things that are somewhat part of the movement as far as something that's almost trying to, so I almost see them in this kind of same light where there's this opposition, you know, maybe they don't, you know, completely see it that way. But are these these barriers come up? And, and Thomas, you have this experience at Charlottesville um, that maybe you could talk about, because in a way, the, again, like the Capitol riots in Charlottesville were of the same, you know, brand and the same, you know, thought and all this. And, and to me, are they, these things that are tr that are trying to 
suppress or, or stop this from being a movement versus a moment in time? So if I could shed some light on that, I suppose. Um, so for starters, I grew up in Southwest Virginia um, in a predominantly white town. I remember when my, first, my family first moved there, I believe it was about 98% white. Um, there were Confederate flags on the Capitol, I mean, on the um, courthouses, on the fire departments, and that was very much so an aspect of culture. So to me, racism was nothing new. Um, me and my siblings dealt with it on a very systemic level, being denied opportunities that we had earned, um, as well as racial bullying and assaults dealing with race specifically. So racism and violence was nothing new. Also, um, when Mother Emanuel occurred, I have family members in, Charlotte, in Char um, Charleston who attend that church. And also I had another family church that was um, burned down by the KKK. And so these are all traumas that, you know, you see growing up. And so when it comes to situations like Charlottesville and my experience living there, now I was not actually a student there at the time of the large KKK rally um, that had taken place. I was there the following year. But with that being said, it is this, um, it's this notion of never being surprised because, you know, as a dark-skinned African-American person, especially, but um, in having faced these racial traumas, no one's ever been shy about hiding their racism from me or their hatred from me. And so when you go to environments that are historically known for um, upholding um, white supremacist ideologies, um, and I'm speaking on Charlottesville as a whole, I mean, we all know the history of um, the United States South, it's nothing new. And when you look into the history of Thomas Jefferson himself, the founder of the university. And so when I'm speaking on these things, I want to, I'm not speaking negatively in any way against the program because within the constructs of the program, the adaptive physiological education program that I had, it was a positive experience. But having to walk onto campus was terrifying, wondering if there will be another person from a terrorist organization group that targets my people will be there. Um, having to deal with um, both um, micro and macro aggressions, um, some of with, with um, people who were also employed by the university um, at the time, um, constantly having to, you know, just in my personal experience, I didn't enjoy being in the downtown mall because people constantly follow me in stores or if they saw me in the street, they would move to the other direction. People would have very, you know, rude and obscene looks. And so, and I'm saying that not to, you know, just um, talk about the negatives, but to highlight the realities when you are, you know, a black person or a racially minoritized person and someone with a marginalized identity, um, you can't separate your race from your experiences within any given space. Um, I can't choose when I can and can't be black. So whether I'm at the grocery store, whether I'm in a classroom, whether I'm walking on campus, whether I'm applying to a job, race always has an impact. And so it makes you be very aware of not only um, how you see the world, but more importantly, how the world sees you and having to adjust to that accordingly. And I think um, it was a really good point that was raised in terms of, you know, noting who are in positions of power. 
you know, we talked about um, earlier, you discussed, you know, in terms of people who are doing podcasts and a lot of the representation within our field um, being um, predominantly white or, you know, white men. And I think that, you know, while anytime we are, you know, expanding on our field and offering more perspectives, it's a fantastic thing, but we also have to critically be looking at whose experiences we're drawing from because there's some lived experiences, you know, with our respective intersections that we may not be able to understand, that we may not even be aware of. You know, I as a male won't be able to speak on necessarily the experiences of a female because that's not the lived experience that I have. Um, and so it becomes important to not only know um, when you're lacking that diversity, you're lacking nuance you're lacking those components of social justice because if people aren't in the room to advocate, to begin with, with what is needed for them in their community, then what changes are being made? How are things moving forward? I didn't record the thing about the podcasting stuff, uh, but we talked about it prior, but what I found is we did this interview with uh, podcast creators and listeners. And one of the surprising things is that all the creators and we, and that are related to the field of PE were all white males, uh, which has been a telling thing that I think is, you know, says like that the group that I'm part of is often the ones that, you know, feel the ability or, or feel that it's their, their duty sometimes to then inform everyone. Um, you know, I made this pretty naively about five and a half years ago, right before, or I, right at the beginning of my PhD, but it's it just, it's telling to see who, and, and, you know, again, and I'm now a gatekeeper and I'm now this a power holder in some way because people listen. Um, and, and, but, you know, and, and with that though, I, I don't always know what to do in my role other than acknowledge it, I don't, you know, and obviously try to give access to more people, but, you know, I always, I always feel like that there's not, I don't always know what the steps are to me empowering other, uh, other people. Um, I, I don't know. But. Well, I, I think you're raising a, a really critical point and that is, so it certainly is uh, informative to know that all of the persons doing a part podcast in our field are white are white men. Uh, so we have the gender piece of that as well as the race piece of that. Uh, but the, the other, the question becomes, what are they doing with that gatekeeper status and, and, and that, that positioning that they have? And so uh, I've had the privilege and opportunity to speak with you on, uh, twice now in terms of on a podcast. And so I know you are doing some positive kinds of things. So that's one of the places you start, as you mentioned before. But if you think about and I continue to use this, this, this phrase that it, there's really nothing new, just new technology. So this is, the, this is the technology of today, but for decades, for generations, the gatekeepers have been the editors of journals in our fields. And primarily, we can see, again, mostly white, white men. And so uh, having more gatekeepers who are from diverse communities, I think, is an important thing because you know, gatekeepers, whether it's for podcasts or for journal article or journal, have a say in who is represented uh, in a large degree, what papers are accepted, what papers are, you know, denied or rejected for, and because editors have quite a bit of power. 
you can reject the paper with, if you come up with a logical rationale, you can pretty much reject any paper from your from the journal if you are a gatekeeper for that journal. So historically it has been in our field in terms of the dissemination of knowledge or what represents knowledge and who knowledge whose knowledge is important has been those gatekeepers. Um, and so I think that's a very critical point to make. And so one of the things we're advocating for is to bring more people into opportunities to serve in these associate editors and then perhaps editor roles uh, to help with that piece of it, uh, that piece of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that and definitely in academia, we do see that is not just the people that are doing the research, but was the research highlighting, right? Is it, is it talking about race or is it, you know, focusing on, on a specific group or something like that? And yeah, no, there is a lot of power in all those things. So like moving, moving the conversation forward, uh, you know, and I, I'd love to talk more a little bit because uh, I know diversity and social uh, justice pedagogy was part of the conversation. Uh, but even before we get into like maybe what those are and how we can apply those things to our field, why is it important to frame these frame these concepts within these these experiences? Uh, yeah, I can I can uh, kind of start with that uh, because it's about empowering people and uh, that they can become change agents, become part of the change itself. So, uh, you know, the first word that comes to mind or the concept that comes to mind for me is empowerment and putting people in places and having opportunities and access that they can exhort that uh, and exert that power and influence and uh, add to the field overall. And I would, I would say representation means a lot, um, especially for minority students um, or minority people, you know, people of color around the entire world nation, because a lot of times it's the whole mindset of out of sight, out of mind. What we don't see, um, we, we don't, even think about, you know, becoming or, you know, representation. Like I said, we, we turn on the TV and a lot of times the people that look like us are athletes um, or entertainers, but in the same aspect, you know, there's this notion of you can be whatever you want to be, but when you don't see anyone that has become what you want to be, um, that looks like you, that's already a part of the, the obstacle because now, it's the whole idea of, well, I have to be the first, I have to create the way, find the way. Um, and when we talk about those gatekeepers or those people with power, you know, how are they paying it forward to, to the individuals coming after them, regardless of what they look like? Is it, is it still an equal opportunity or are we already faced with, with obstacles um, that we never even knew were there because there isn't any representation to show us how to get to reach or attain, you know, the goals that we've made for ourselves. I wonder sometimes too, in our field, uh, you know, of adapted, like I, you know, I think um, what you're talking about with representation and such uh, is, is talked about a lot from the perspective of disability, but, you know, I think that idea of kind of intersectionality where we're bringing things like gender and race into it uh, is something that we don't highlight. Um, you know, and, and again, like, you know, uh, we, we want more representation of people with disabilities, but we're not talking about, you know, our scholars that are working with, um, 
training those the, the people that are going to work with people with disabilities and we're not talking about representation of a diverse group of people with disabilities versus just this broad term of disability which i think is um again if we had better representation perhaps those things would be more at the forefront yeah, um for sure so so going a little bit let's talk a little bit about like just you know what is social justice pedagogy and and, and how can we apply these concepts to physical education and adapted physical education or activity? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of, uh, as it relates to uh, education, uh, we think of the word social justice and, and uh, I would just say justice as opposed to social justice because justice is way broader than the social component. You know, it includes the cultural and uh, environmental justice, et cetera. So, in terms of justice pedagogy, we're thinking about different kinds of strategies. So there is no one strategy, uh, there is no one pedagogy that covers all justice type pedagogy, but it is recognizing and, and finding ways to combat inequities that exist in school and in society. And so whether that is uh, using critical pedagogy or whether it's using culturally responsive or culturally relevant or culturally sustainable, pedagogies of different ways going, going about trying to combat these inequities that exist in our schools. Yeah. And, in you know, something too, that I, I think about uh, with these things is how, like something I, I struggle with. So all, so I'm in Iowa, which is, I think like the whitest or second whitest state in America, all of my students, I don't have one not non-white student in my class. Uh, right now I have, but right now all of my students are white and, and I grew up in um, either Detroit or inner, like a inner ring suburb of Detroit. So my experiences are very different of, of diversity for them. When I talk to my students about race or even disability, it's often, their experiences are vastly different than mine. And they're talking about having one, you know, one student, uh, you know, that doesn't look like them in their classrooms. Um, and I have a hard time relating and talking to them. How do like, like, so how, like, how do we reach out with these different justice pedag pedagogies? I, I, I often have a bridge that I, I don't know how to, how to try to overcome because their experiences are so limited with working with um, people that don't look like them. And, and, you know, what does it look like these, these, justice pedagogies, um, how might they look for different like demographics like that? Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, you raise a difficult uh, dilemma because, you know, here it, uh, in Columbus, we have, we have the opportunity of placing our students in very diverse schools uh, from the northern part of the uh, city where they could be placed in schools that are predominantly white schools. Uh, to get those experiences to schools more uh, southern and western part of the city uh, where they will have large proportions of those school bodies uh, are black or brown students. So uh, that helps us resolve that issue. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to get people to understand experiences that they've never had themselves. They may, you know, uh, cognitively, intellectually understand, but there's a difference between that explaining something and having had the experience itself. 
And so I think that's a difficult component to it as well. Uh, so I don't, I don't know that I have an answer to the particular dilemma that you, that you raised. If I might add to that, I think that um, a lot of the responsibility then falls on, you know, the student teachers and, you know, the teachers um, and any job that you might have. Um, you don't necessarily have the option of saying, oh, well, they didn't teach me that at university. So I guess I'm just not going to be able to be that great at my job or I guess I just won't ever do this. It's like that with power comes responsibility. And when you have the power as an educator when you're in these positions of power it is your responsibility to make up for that lack of knowledge that you didn't have you know we are all products of our environments so we may not have all had exposure to various groups of people even myself even though i'm you know considered a minority you know i still don't know everything about every you know racial group every gender so it's my responsibility as you know, I'm teaching university classes, I'm teaching students, um, as I'm advocating for these various people that I'm working with, that I do my research. First, I need to acknowledge that there is information missing. Like, wait a second, I'm not aware of the culture of these people. I'm not sure of the lived experiences. So I need to do my research. I need to be reaching out to parents in the community. I need to be having good conversation with my students, asking them what they need because they'll be, students are the best advocates is something that I believe. They will tell you what they need or they'll show you what they need if you get them the opportunity and let them know that they can be heard. So I think first acknowledging that there is a gap in your education that you do have ignorance because there are areas that I'm ignorant. We're all ignorant to some degree, you know, being a PhD or a scholar or a teacher doesn't mean that you know everything, but hopefully it does mean that you know how to seek out the resources so that you will learn. And I think that's one of the most important things kind of going back to the concept of representation is that when there is representation, you have people, you know, whether it's at a university level or um, elementary, middle, level or however you might say um people bring with them their experiences and bring awareness to various intersections and problems within various communities and bring awareness to those injustices and so having even just representation in that space can help provide you know other resources to be able to say hey you know how do i approach this or if nothing else you know be a starting point of teaching the importance of knowing other people's intersectional identities. Um, because if you go through a system where race is never talked about, where social injustices are never talked about, where justice pedagogy in general are never discussed, and you come from a more privileged background, you're not gonna see the importance or know the impacts that race or other marginalized identities have and how they impact your student. So then you'll be less likely to um, adopt culturally responsive um, or social justice pedagogies. So that's my take on that. And I think to add, as educators, um, not to teach based on your lived experience or your, your privilege um, from what you've experienced and what you think education should be for your students. It's a difficult thing to do, but you know, sometimes having student-led you know, discussions or activities but also as an educator, being educated from your students is, there is nothing wrong with allowing them to bring their lived experiences, their traditions, their culture into your classroom space 
or your, you know, gym space, whatever the space is, but allow them to bring what they have to offer as well so that you can join and create a create the space where everyone is comfortable and they can be their authentic self and not conforming to what someone else wants me to be or what someone else is expecting of me. Um, and that allows not only the student to be comfortable and, and be authentic in bringing their traditions, their culture, their lived experience, but also, also as the teacher, being able to adjust and be versatile in your approach to reach every student in the space. In a lot of ways, it sounds to me like kind of just like good pedagogy, which is trying to get your students' voices, uh, and, you know, which, you know, we talk about a lot when we talk about students with disabilities, you know, or on this podcast, we talk about that concept of inclusion, not just being, hey, we got kids with and without disabilities in a room together versus what is their experience? What, you know, what do they think? And it sounds like we just, we need to apply these things throughout, you know, um, and, and throughout our, our, our college programs, um, and, and all these things as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so what, what would you want for a APE PE teacher, maybe a physical education undergraduate who's listening to this podcast, uh, and this, 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 these concepts and discussion to get out of this, uh, conversation. Well, I, I can start it and uh, please jump in, Ross and, and Thomas. Um, the importance of self-examination is what I would want them to take away. That what we are saying is it's not a particular tool per se, although there are tools, meaning uh, different pedagogies. Um, and, you know, one of the popular ones is culturally responsive pedagogy as an example, as a starting point for, for teachers to consider. But... I think even more important than the, the two that is selected to do these things is, is that in the need for self-reflection. And uh, I think Ross also said it within his comments in terms of, and, and, and Thomas as well, the, the responsibility of self-educating. And, you know, there are no excuses today with the technology as it is, and you can, you can find out, uh, pretty much whatever it is you need to learn from the internet and other resources to date. So I would say the major message I would want is the importance of uh, self-reflection and the courage to understand that we all have uh, places we can improve in. And then that self-examination, I think, is a starting point. I would say step out of your comfort zone. Um, a lot of times we, we stick with what, what we know and we don't challenge ourselves to and put ourselves in situations or spaces where sometimes we don't know what's the right thing to do, where we can learn ourselves. And so for, you know, physical education majors or individuals who haven't stepped into the field, but also for educators and teachers that are already in the field, you know, find opportunities or even create opportunities where you're challenged with learning something new and where it isn't all about what you have to bring, but where can I find something new to, to create a different approach for a different group of individuals so that when I do go into this space, when I do become a, a teacher or, you know, create these programs, it's, 
it's educating the whole child, but also every individual that steps into this space, regardless of the experience and and obstacles that they have faced before they stepped into this classroom. Um, yeah, and to add to that, I would just say, you know, just reiterate the notion that your education never stops. Um, when you leave your respective institutions, you are always going to be learning from your students. You're going to be learning from the communities that you're in. Um, and ultimately, you're responsible for um, correcting any miseducation that you have and um, for properly educating yourself. And that um, another key thing is that your students don't stop having their respective identities just because they might also be disabled as well. So meaning, I think a lot of times people take this colorblind approach to um, conversations of ableism and within adapted spaces when a student who is black and has a disability, just because they have a disability doesn't mean that they stop being black, which means that they're still dealing with systemic racism, um, other educators, implicit biases about race as well as ableism. So you can't separate the student from their various identities. You need to acknowledge their identities, embrace their identities, their cultures, you know, have those conversations because again, you are responsible for teaching that student. You don't get to stop being a good educator because you have come across a challenge. You don't get to stop teaching if a state changes their standards. So, you know, why would you stop teaching and trying to provide quality education for a student just because you find it challenging? So continue to self-educate. Big concepts right there and, and uh, really powerful ones that I, I really relate, uh, I really think are important that Thomas just hit on about that just because uh, a person has a disability that doesn't mean it's like this. And I sometimes think that, you know, especially in my past that I saw disability kind of almost as like this over, I don't know, arching identity. So if you have a disability, that's, you know, and, and I worked in a school system that I think kind of treated it that way. Um, uh, that, that, you know, said that if you're disabled, that's your identity, you know, or that's like your, your person doesn't matter, all these other things. Uh, and I think that's really something that we need to talk about more and also talk about in our research a little bit. It's the, the, the lack of that intersectionality in our research is, is troubling. Um, so with that, uh, I appreciate the conversation. This was uh, really, really fun to have and, and, and insightful. Uh, and thank you for coming on and being a part of this discussion. Absolutely. Thank you for allowing us to come in and have the conversation with you today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was, it was great to meet you as well.